0: the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Dr. Mazur. Dr. Laura Mazur is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the Catholic University of America. She has been one of the archaeologists excavating enslaved communities on former plantations owned by the Society of Jesus in Maryland. I wanted to talk to Dr. Mazur because I don't think we talk often enough about the archaeology behind finding out about the lives of enslaved persons, as well as finding out about how Jesuits, the Society of Jesus, treated or lived with enslaved persons. And in particular, in Maryland, we have this idea of the first colony in Maryland, this Catholic colony, being a place of religious freedom. And I think we need to examine at what cost that people pursue religious freedom while at the same time enslaving other human persons. And how does that vibe with mission work, catechizing, baptizing these very same people while at the same time understanding that there is no mild form of slavery, there is no benevolence (laughs) that we could say, oh, well, you know, it was a little different here because at least they were baptized does that really jive with who we say we are as Catholics? Are we schizophrenic here? What was going on? What was influencing the Jesuits? And was it really just as simple as profit and holding on to your land? There's so much more to unravel with Dr. Mazur. And I think this is a time for us to think about reparations. I hope that that touches that spirit in you to want to make repair for some of the things that we're going to discuss. And it's not just perhaps financial, although I'm definitely not ruling that out, but also to think about what kind of spiritual reparations we can do to make amends and also to take care to say we're sorry to God, because it's God is chiefly offended by these grave sins. Of course, we bear them and we are dealing with them, but that doesn't mean we can't do something about them, something positive. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that is unique. Look, you may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast. And guess what? That's okay. That's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So, If this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by clicking the follow button on your favorite podcast listening app and by getting a subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Dr. Mazur is up next. Welcome, Dr. Mazur, to the Gloria Purvis Podcast. I'm so happy you could join me today. It's my absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. You know, I bet a lot of people, when they think archaeologists and whatnot, they probably are thinking Indiana Jones. But let me just ask, was that the inspiration for getting into archaeology? What made you want
1: to become an archaeologist? It's funny. It's I use Indiana Jones as a teaching tool in archaeology for my students because it's something that they connect to. The movies are so classic. My own story is a lot different because everyone thinks about archaeologists as going out to you know, exotic locations and doing work. but my my first love was always American history. Mm. So I came to archaeology because I loved history, but I, I love the the hands-on element of doing history and the and the the tangibility of working with artifacts to you know, seeing places, encountering places was so awesome to me.
0: and I understand that you study the Jesuit
1: mission within Maryland.
0: What, what led you to that? So
1: it's a bit of a, a roundabout story because I didn't necessarily go into my research with the intention of looking at Jesuit sites. I was in grad school about 10 or 11 years ago at, at William & Mary, and one of my professors said, you know, it's interesting, nobody really studies the Catholics. <laughs> and, and I said, well, well, that's interesting. I thought to myself, I'm Catholic, and this is sort of a, a need, a lacuna in research. And so mm-hmm. about a year and a half later, when I started my PhD program, I, I went down that road. And I initially thought I would start looking in Pennsylvania, that's where my family is from. But I ended up going in a very different direction, because I looked at you know, the fact that there was a, a St. Ignatius Church mm. in utterly the middle of nowhere <laughs> right, right. in Pennsylvania. And I thought, this is odd. And, and it didn't take too much research to make my way down to Southern Maryland and to realize that there were even earlier sites and sites where archaeology had already been done. Mm. And so that led to a, <laughs> a long term project related to two Jesuit sites specifically.
0: Can you set the stage for our listeners who may not know
1: much about the founding of Maryland? Sure. So Maryland is founded in 1634 via a royal charter. It's given to a Calvert family to rule as proprietors. So we often think of colonies that are founded in in a couple different ways. Virginia is a joint stock company. So Maryland, like Pennsylvania, is a royal colony. And so the proprietor has an opportunity to have an influence in the laws that are set and sort of the attitude. And and in Maryland, that plays out as an attitude that's supposed to be one of religious toleration. Right.
0: And yet that wasn't necessarily the case, which makes me think about, was that the
1: attraction that brought the
0: Jesuits to Maryland? What made them come? The
1: Jesuits are invited by... calverts uh, i think to minister to catholics who are there but they also have an interest in evangelizing american indians Mm -hmm. Uh, this is a really important value at the time for missionaries and there's been a lot of missionary work happening in the 16th and 17th centuries so i think there was interest in ministering to catholics But also to convert, reconvert Protestants, English Mm. Protestants, and to convert American Indians, like the Piscataways and other groups. And they're still Catholic. Piscataways out in Maryland still Catholic. Were there a large number of Jesuits in Maryland? The numbers fluctuated because somebody would go out and you know start doing missionary work, and and then there might be a period of conflict where the Jesuits had to run away to Virginia. Mm-hmm. So those numbers contracted a little bit from time to time. But it, it was always fairly small numbers, somewhere between about one or two and maybe 15 at the height.
0: So how much land did they own? And how did, if they had land, how did they get it? Did
1: they own a lot of land? They did. They did ultimately own a, a large amount of land and they acquired it gradually. Mm-hmm. They tried it first to sort of collaborate, work with the Piscataways, the Anacostans, Mm -hmm. other American Indian communities. But the proprietor wasn't too happy about that system. He didn't want them to have an ability to acquire land through treaties and alliances. So they ultimately purchased their own land, starting in Southern Maryland, just south of St. Mary's City, and then gradually moving all the way up into the Eastern Shore and into Delaware and Pennsylvania. So many of us were taught that
0: Maryland was a safe refuge, not only for Catholics, but also for Protestants. And I'm thinking about, well, way before we even had such a thing as a First Amendment, there was a the Maryland Toleration Act of 1649, I think, that ensured religious freedom for most Christians. But, I mean, I think there was still a lot of religious conflict and persecution, and that was the rule rather than the exception. And so why was this the case? And what was the impact upon the Jesuit mission?
1: Certainly, Maryland is thought of as a kind of experiment in Protestants and Catholics being able to live together, mm. to be able to live harmoniously in society, because it's an experiment that's supposed to reflect well on this and then model what can happen back in England. But it's an experiment with it's very rocky. There are Battles, there are uprisings that happen, Engels Rebellion or the plundering time, just about 10 years after the colony is founded. And these don't go away. There are constant conflicts. And so there's always a battle for who is going to be in charge. Are they going to be Catholics? Are they going to be Protestants? And ultimately, this is the reason, one of the reasons why the capital is moved from St. Mary's City, which most people don't know about today. It's a fairly rural area. It's a very quiet area. And it's moved to Annapolis, where, mm. you know, it's the capital of Maryland as a state today. Mm.
0: Well, let me jump down to slavery. First of all, when was slavery legalized within Maryland? And why did the Jesuits first used enslaved Africans in
1: Maryland? I have not encountered a period in any kind of you know British colonial history where slavery is outlawed during the colonial mm-hmm. period. It's something that is always seen, to, at least one way or another, as acceptable, at least legally acceptable. It's when you start to see laws enacted in the 1660s, 1670s, 80s in Maryland and Virginia, that's when it's codified. But it was certainly legal before.
0: Okay, so I could just
1: bring him in. It's a really sad part of history, you know, that we don't talk about enough and we need to talk about more. The Jesuits, we know, become entrenched in slavery as an institution, as a way of, you know, making money off of their lands, making money off their investments, as, you know, a way to support the church. You know, the Jesuits essentially are the church in colonial British America. And so if there is a chapel, They're the ones who minister to it, with a few small exceptions. There's a a Franciscan here and there. And so they become entrenched in enslavement as an institution during the early 1700s. Some of the earliest records are from, I think, 1717. So it's not clear if they enslaved people before that, but certainly they have a lot of trouble with indentured labor, laborers who are Protestants, Mm. who are... (laughs) You know, all of these conflicts, we think of them as big pie in the sky conflicts of, you know, over battles that are about politics, but they're also interpersonal conflicts. And so if you have indentured servants, you have laborers working on your property who aren't Catholic, who might disagree with you, it's going to lead to interpersonal conflicts and it's going to lead to reduced profits.
0: Wow. Yeah, And that seems to be the big concern, the profits. Right. How was the slavery here? that we're talking about similar to or different from slavery practice in other parts of the Americas?
1: A lot of it has to do with scale. Mm. A lot of the difference is it isn't so much, there's no mild form of slavery. It's not a, an appropriate question to talk about or ask. We mm. can ask about the scale of the, the enterprise. We have compared to, you know, say a sugar plantation in the Caribbean, Oof, um, yeah. or compared to a, a Finca in Latin America. And, and the Jesuits are certainly invested in these types of, you know, enterprise as well. They are enslaved large communities of people in the Caribbean and South America, and Central America.
0: Well, I found that interesting. You say, look, there is no mild form of slavery, right? You're not gonna go someplace and say, Oh, it's actually very humane here. And that makes me also think about something that I'm understanding that was happening with Persons enslaved by the Jesuits. So let me just ask did the Jesuits baptize, catechize,
1: and minister to the enslaved Africans or African Americans at some point? Yes, absolutely. And they write about it extensively. So while we don't have very clear sort of origins for understanding the Jesuits' relationship to slavery, it's very clear that by the time we have the earliest sacramental records in mm-hmm. Maryland, that you know, African Americans are in those records. They're prominent in those records. And this is a, a really widespread practice. And it just seems schizophrenic to me, that you baptize, catechize,
0: minister to, but you also keep them in bondage, which, as you said, there is no mild form of enslavement. It's just really peculiar. But then I'm also thinking, well, but then why did the enslaved person's more than practice catholicism i think some of them actually embraced it from some of the things that i've read particularly when when some of the georgetown 272 the enslaved africans who were sold off to keep georgetown university running asked for catholic relics like medals and rosaries so why is it that some embraced
1: catholicism it's you know this is a question it's a hard question because it's one that's that's impossible to answer in in a really concrete way. I can hypothesize a couple things. One thing that I notice is there's a lot of similarities between christianity and and West African religious spiritual traditions. A lot of rituals involve the same kinds of substances, right looking at offerings of wine, looking at the role of water, looking at the sense of Objects and places as being holy. These are our shared ideas. Mm -hmm. And there are also a lot of missions that are happening in the places where people are captivated from, enslaved from. And so there's a sense that this isn't just imposed on communities, it's something that they encounter and they may think, you know, it might make my life better. But there's also a sense of this is what I believe right? They find common ground.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about how the cult of saints could be very familiar when you consider ancestral relations and worship and things like that. I heard about, again, the story of when people were sold asking for medals. And is that
1: true? Yes, absolutely. And there are a lot of medals that have come out of the ground at archaeological sites, sites associated with, you know, the Jesuit properties, but also sites that are from people who had been emancipated, who were living on their own, and who continued to remain connected to Catholic churches. And so many members of the descendant community I have met are still Catholic, and it's still an incredibly important part of their life. And it's something that's very difficult to reckon with. But absolutely, rosaries, devotional medals are a really important part of faith.
0: So I understand some of these former Jesuit plantations in Maryland, you called them sites of memory. What
1: do you mean by that? To me, these are difficult places. And I think, you know, as Catholics, we want to think in a positive way about our history, about our past. But sometimes it's difficult to do that. Sometimes it's difficult to really tell the whole history, tell the whole truth. And they, they are sites of positive memories, memories of faith, but they're also sites of difficult memories, memories of enslavement, memories of family separations. And those are the ones that are so poignant to me.
0: You know, it's interesting you say that because, you know, sometimes people don't understand. And when folks are like, why would you want to get married at plantation? Do you know the misery that happened there may look all beautiful now, but let's remember what actually happened there for quite a long time. And I think that's the hard part, right? Because you could look at the beauty of the place currently and say, oh, this would be lovely for some kind of, you know, sacramental celebration. You know, we're going to celebrate getting married, but Yeah, it's kind of hard when you start to think about the misery and the um, suffering of the people who also live there. We'll be back in a minute. Let me just jump forward to some of your most recent excavations. What kind of things do you look for as you uncover the layers of subsoil
1: at an excavation site? I'm really curious about that. So we're generally looking for evidence of anything that people are doing in the ground. Mm. We're looking for artifacts, those objects that you can physically pick up and take with you back to your laboratory. But we're also looking for what are called features. And so these are imprints in the ground of anything from the foundation of a wall or a post hole from a house or a fence line. And Mm -hmm. this is where ground penetrating radar and other types of technologies are really, really useful for helping us to locate where those features are. And the hope is, and one of the goals that our project has, is to find the homes of people who were enslaved. And it's one of the perhaps most poignant aspects of this history is that they're some of the hardest buildings to find Mm. because they are so ephemeral. And because they're places that aren't valued when we think about historic preservation. They're the first buildings to be torn down and forgotten. And so that's why we play a really important role as archaeologists. That's one of our principal goals, because once you find those places, those places can be remembered. When you
0: say they're ephemeral, gosh, so many things have come into mind because, you know, I'm from Charleston, South Carolina, which has a very deep history, lots of plantations around the way, but very few have maintained those structures of where the enslaved persons lived, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I'm like, was that they were torn down because, oh, well, we're past the slavery period. Nobody wants to see them. This isn't important. Or, and <laughs> was it we need to construct new things on this land where these enslaved ramshackle
1: structures were? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. One of the things, often these structures, homes, they're essentially log cabins. And so the logs are laid right on the ground. So you don't even see a lot of clear foundations. And, you know, we're in the East Coast. It's muggy. It's hot. There's a lot Mm. of bugs. And so these wooden structures are going to break down. So they're just not going to last. They're going to get termites. They're going to rot. And Mm. so it's one of the sad facts that we, we have trouble finding them because of the fact that they're so ephemeral. Last summer, you unearthed a cellar, I think, possibly
0: associated with an older manor house in Newtown, Maryland. What did you discover? And not just there, but what are some of the most common artifacts that you do find in these historical
1: digs? Sure. The cellar from Newtown, I'm I'm really excited about it because there's been a lot of archaeology at Newtown before, and no one had really come across this and figured out exactly what it was, what we find is trash. We find a lot of refuse. We find animal bones. Mm. We find little bits of broken wine bottle. We find little bits of plants and crab claw and pottery. And so it doesn't look like anything too exciting until you bring it back to the lab and make sense of it. And all the oysters, that that cellar was just chock full of oysters. (laughs) They were eating. So have there been any artifacts that surprised you Certainly, you know, I always get excited and surprised by anything small that has survived. So, you know, Mm. buttons, any kind of button that actually preserves in the ground is exciting to me. You know, anything that's actually not broken up in that whenever we find a a cellar or an area that hasn't been impacted by a plow is really exciting because so many of these sites have been plowed over for hundreds of years.
0: Uh I'm thinking about when we talked about ephemeral structures or maybe things not being considered important. And it made me think about something you did recently. You helped to identify a number of unmarked graves of enslaved Africans on the grounds of Sacred Heart Catholic Church located in Bowie, Maryland. I mean,
1: first of all, where were the unmarked graves and
0: how did they go unnoticed?
1: I don't think they went unnoticed by everyone. I think they went unnoticed by the people who are making decisions. And that's Uh the part that's most poignant because I've met so many members of the descendant community who say, my grandmother's buried there. We've always known she was buried there. And we want to make sure that we can pay our respects to her and, and her memory and her soul. And we can't do that. But I got a call about three months ago from the archivists in the Archdiocese of Washington. She said, we found a cemetery we know there's several hundred African-Americans buried there. We know probably many of them were enslaved or had been enslaved. And this was really the effort of the parish who said, you know, Sacred Heart Church said, it's time. We're going to start clearing the woods. And they, they did ground penetrating radar. They were able to identify the location of likely over 150 graves Wow, and It's been a remarkable journey even over the past few months because, you know, we always think of archaeology as involving digging, right? Mm -hmm. But this is a project that doesn't involve digging. My role here is to map the locations of potential burials, to map essentially what just look like rocks in the ground. Right. They're stones, stones that would have been plowed up by members of the enslaved community, who were farming the land and then they carried them back. And when their loved ones passed away, this is how they marked the burials.
0: You know, it was so hard for me as I'm hearing you say, oh yeah, people knew and the people who made decisions didn't care. But I keep thinking that burying the dead is one of our, our corporal works of mercy. And to not reverence and respect burial sites of human persons to me, just seems to go so against our own values as Catholics, and yet we're saying that was the case.
1: It's been so hard for me. I think about, you know, my visiting the grave of my grandmother. My grandma and I were always really close. I think about. I know exactly where she's buried. I can always find it. I know where her family is buried. I know where my mother's family are all buried, and it's accessible on databases. And some of these burials are from those time periods. They're from even into the early 20th century. And it's a reflection on you know, who is seen as, as valuable in life. Mm-hmm. Because people who are seen as valuable in life, their graves are marked. And we write about them and we cherish them. And it's not that these grave sites aren't cherished. They are cherished, but they're not written about in the same way. And they're not always maintained. And I wish I could say this site was unusual, but it's incredibly common. African-American cemeteries are incredibly neglected. And so this is a really, you know, important project. And I hope that we can, you know, through it raise awareness that this is not unusual and it's certainly not unusual within the Catholic Church.
0: So what is Sacred Heart gonna do now that they know that there are, what, about 150 graves there? Are they gonna do
1: some kind of ceremony, prayers? What are they gonna do? Yeah, it's a long process. So we we just have gotten started. When I first started working on the project, I said I, I want this to be done right. And and I want the descendant community, you know, the people whose grandparents and great grandparents are are buried there. They need to be involved from the beginning. And so what we're doing right now is building relationships. Mm. We're building relationships between those members of the descendant community who don't always have a lot of trust in the Catholic Church. So we're we're talking right now, rather than it being just about, you know, mapping and doing work. We're talking. We're trying to figure out what everyone's values are, what everyone's priorities are, so that we can be on shared ground as we move forward for the project.
0: Can you share how your work connects many of the Georgetown University 272 descendants with their ancestors and one another? Sure.
1: I've, I've met so many wonderful people who, who have connections to Georgetown and they, they have such incredible stories. They have such incredible stories about their own journeys of learning about their ancestors because they didn't know. They didn't mm-hmm. know about their family until maybe they got a call one day a few years ago and someone said, you're connected and they discover family. Whenever we have events, whether it's archaeology, whether it's the the Zoom meetings we have once a month, they're family reunions. And mm. I, I'm the outsider because everyone <laughs> knows everybody else. Um, they're all cousins and they they mm. all call each other cousin. And it's a it's a really beautiful thing and it's it's a difficult thing too, because so many as, as I look through sacramental records, I might find out about someone and then, you know. Two months later, I talked to their direct descendant. Wow. And it makes it a really powerful and, and poignant thing for me, especially when you realize that their children were sold. Yeah. Someone who was was a faithful Catholic, someone who was baptized in the church.
0: And I'm sure had their children baptized only to have their, their children sold away, never to be seen again, and yes. wondering whatever happened to them. And it's almost like at least... You know, these hundreds and hundreds of years later, that these lost portions of family, these families that are broken apart, are now being able to be pieced back together to discover these lost cousins, or or maybe not lost, but sold away cousins, because it wasn't like an accidental. Oh, you know, they moved away. it was an intentional breaking up of families that they now can reconnect. And myself, as an African American, I'm thinking about how powerful that would be. It's like discovering yourself, really. Wow, I, I, can't, I can't even. That's just something I long for. I wish somebody would call me and say, hey, we found some members of your family. Did you know you're related to these folks? And it just, I guess, fills out my understanding of myself and then to have an interest in what were their lives like. And let me just say this, though. I think your work is amazing and so important in how you're finding and fitting Pieces into a very large and complex puzzle together that really benefits these families and our understanding of our own history. So, thank you for that. Before we go, I want to ask one last question. I know that you note that most of the enslaved cannot be found in any history books or even in the recollections of many of the Maryland Jesuits, right? But you state that understanding their lives helps reframe a story that spans times and oceans. Can you explain what you mean by reframe?
1: So much of the way that we talk about our history as as American Catholics is a story about religious freedom. Mm-hmm. It's a story about, you know, when we think about that origin story in Maryland, it's a story about, you know, how we came to live in the nation that we live in today, where we can openly practice our faiths. But when we look at this history, when we focus on the persons, you know, on whose labor our faith was built, our church was built in the United States, the people who who physically made the bricks to build the first churches, we're not just looking at religious freedom, we're looking at the costs of that religious freedom. And it is so incredibly important to reframe that history, to not just think about it as a bucolic story. It's a painful story. And if we, you know, are willing to confront this truth, I think it's something that, you know, will help us grow in our faiths and help us grow in our ability to connect with people who are different from us.
0: Mm -hmm. And one of the things too, I think it does is it helps us to make some kind of spiritual reparations for the harm that was done so that some people could practice their religion freely. You know, I think we have to really think about it. What cost did we pursue religious freedom? At what cost did we want to have these chapels built or extend the life of a, of a university? At what human cost to these enslaved persons who, you know, and why were they enslaved in the first place? And what does that say about our faith? So. Yeah, I'm glad that you're able to help us reframe and think about and ultimately, I hope, make some kind of amends with these families and also make repair to God for the harm that we've done. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Mazur, for joining me on the Gloria Purpose podcast. And thank you for your important work. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. I'm so glad you're tuning in to the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and well, sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Oh, by the way, could you leave us a review? I would love to hear from you. And you can also follow me on Twitter at gloria purvis and on Instagram at i am gloria purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Maggie Van Dorn and is engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.